0: Hi, this is Steve Nerlich. Why, 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 why cheap astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, episode 83 Black Holes, again. Well, it seems you can never get enough of these gravity wells of mystery. Despite all the physics of event horizons, which says that no information about what's inside can ever come outside, our natural curiosity rebels against the idea that something could exist but be unknowable. So, let's investigate what can be known here. Dear Cheap Astronomy, What's in a black hole? Answer: Don't know. And coming up next week, we'll investigate where the edge of the universe is. Okay, just kidding. But the whole idea of an event horizon is that anything lying beyond it is unknowable, meaning we'll never get any observational evidence about what lies beyond that event horizon. There are hypotheses like Hawking radiation, where information that's trapped inside the black hole may eventually be returned to the wider universe as the black hole evaporates. But that's information in a purely physics sense. It's not information that could be interpreted to tell you anything about what was inside the black hole before it evaporated. And like most thinking about black holes, Hawking radiation and black hole evaporation are just ideas, which are unlikely to be testable anytime soon. The standard science communication explanation is that a black hole contains a singularity of infinite density. Here at Cheap Astronomy, we tend to dismiss explanations that have infinities in them. These are generally lazy explanations, or just plain bad math. After all, since black holes do increase in mass when new material falls into them, That implies that their density will grow from infinity to infinity plus one. So, here at Cheap Astronomy, we think it's better to say that all the mass in a black hole occupies a Planck unit of volume, that is, one Planck unit of distance, cubed. The whole idea of a Planck unit is to acknowledge there is always a point at which physical parameters become indivisible. So a Planck unit of distance isn't zero, B can't have half a Planck unit. One Planck unit of distance is as short and small as anything can be. So, how come we can keep adding more and more mass and still have it all compressed down into a volume of just one Planck unit of distance cubed? Consider the humble atom with a nucleus surrounded by an electron cloud. It's often said that scale is equivalent to a fly in the middle of St. Paul's Cathedral. But when you throw a bunch of atoms into the crushing gravity of a star, the nuclei and the electrons dissociate into a plasma, which leaves less empty space between those particles. And then, if it's a large star, when it ages and dies, it may form a neutron star where the electrons and protons are crushed together to form neutrons. So there's nothing left except neutrons. Very tightly packed together, since there are no more positive or negative charges to keep things apart. At that stage, just one teaspoon of dense neutron star matter has the same mass as Mount Everest. The next step after a neutron star is where no one can quite agree. With even more crushing gravity, the neutron matter might collapse into its composite quarks. But with that density, there's so much gravity generated that you reach a point where light can't escape, so whatever is really happening happens behind an event horizon. It could be that the quarks are just point particles with no intrinsic size or volume of their own, So you could just keep cramming an endless number of quarks into one Planck volume, adding to its mass and its density without ever increasing its volume. But others argue that quarks can't behave like that. For example, it's been proposed that on the way down to collapsing into a singularity, the infalling quarks are subject to a repulsive force arising from Heisenberg's uncertainty principle – which works to prevent them all from occupying the same location at the same time. Indeed, it suggested this Heisenbergish repulsive force is sufficient to make all the quarks rebound outwards, hence reducing the density and the gravity so that all that degenerate quark matter ultimately emerges out of the black hole in the form of a Planck star. But because time runs with such relative slowness within a black hole, that process is still going on, and it may take eons more before the contents of the first black holes ever formed in the universe do eventually re-emerge as the first Planck stars that anyone has ever seen, if anyone is still around to see them. If all that sounds a bit fanciful, well, yes, it does sound a bit fanciful. But this is what black hole physics is all about. In the absence of any real data, there's plenty of room to make all sorts of hypothetical postulates, and it's pretty hard for anyone to prove you wrong. So, what's really in a black hole? Don't know. This is the middle bit. Yep, when cosmologists say that something's unknowable, they're not kidding but that's not going to stop anyone from speculating. Such speculation is more than just science fiction, although sometimes it's also science fiction. Dear Cheap Astronomy, Can you really have planets around black holes? This is yet another reference to the movie Interstellar, which was built around the premise of a black hole called Gargantua, having three orbiting planets. This is an entirely theoretical scenario, as we've never observed a black hole with orbiting planets, but it is plausible. After all, a black hole represents a significant gravity-generating mass, particularly in Gargantua's case, since it is clearly a supermassive black hole, even if that's not specifically stated in the script. Of course, to have planets around a black hole, you'd need some very tightly constrained Goldilocks conditions. Those planets could have been wandering rogues that got caught in the black hole's gravity well, or they might have accreted within the black hole's accretion disk. But either way, they'd have to be at just the right distance and have just the right orbital trajectory to retain an orbit that doesn't decay despite sharing that orbit with the black hole's accretion disk. And since black holes can grow in mass, as they consume more material, the planet's tenuous orbital balance is always at risk. And taking all that a step further, to have planets with liquid water on their surface, and in one case a planet with just the right atmospheric temperature, pressure and composition that you can whip your helmet off, requires some extremely tight Goldilocks conditions. The way that might work is that the inner parts of the black hole's accretion disk become compressed and generate radiation and heat as that material is compressed together. And again, it is plausible that an accretion disk could generate just the right amount of heat in just the right radiation spectrum, but the long-term stability of that very narrow range output is doubtful. If the black hole isn't constantly fed with new material, its radiative output will decline, and if it is being fed with new material, there's always a risk that its radiative output could increase unpredictably and perhaps dramatically. So if we do find an Earth-like planet in orbit around a supermassive black hole, it would confirm our assumption that nearly anything is possible in this vast universe, but at the same time, we'd be unlikely to think it's a great place to colonise. Anyhow, back to Gargantua and its three fictional planets. The first is called Miller's Planet, an ocean world with a huge tidal bulge of water that appears to whip around the planet, although really it's the bulge that's fixed, and it's the planet that's moving underneath it. But with a bulge that big, containing that much water mass it's likely the planet's rotation would be affected, slowing it down until the planet becomes tidally locked to the black hole. Furthermore, with that much gravitational stretch on the planet, it wouldn't just be the ocean that stretched, but the planet's crust as well. And with that much stretching going on, it's likely the crust would turn molten, evaporating all the water and turning that world into something like Io, the pizza-faced moon of Jupiter. Kip Thorne, the Nobel Prize winner who provided the technical advice for the movie, proposed in his companion book that Miller's planet really is tidally locked and it just oscillates back and forth during its orbit around the black hole. That would still give the tidal bulge a wave-like motion, it just wouldn't go all the way around the planet. Gargantua's second planet, man's planet, just turns out to have some weird frozen clouds, so not much help there. And Dr. Man appears briefly as a psychopathic nutcase with a PhD who nearly destroys the mission. Once again, demonstrating that anyone with a PhD is just plain trouble. But finally, Edmund's Planet turns out to be that cringeworthy stalwart of all science fiction plots an alien world where astronauts can just whip off their helmets because what could possibly go wrong? Anne Hathaway, playing brand, whips her helmet off to enact Plan B, which involves unloading frozen embryos transported from Earth. Plan A was apparently a Golga-Fritchum solution, letting everyone on the dying Earth... Believe the mission was going to discover a new space travel technology that would then rescue everyone. But despite all the wailing and weeping, as the truth of Plan A comes to light, Plan A unexpectedly works out because of all that weird s*** with the bookshelves. Here at Cheap Astronomy, it was only from reading the background fan pages that we have been able to piece together what was actually going on. All the physics in the movie was relatively straightforward, small astronomy joke there, but the plot, not so much, although we did like the robots. This is the end bit. So, there you go. People now make movies about these black, bewildering behemoths. Movies which are often bewildering themselves, but do at least get people talking about the underlying science. But that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've got a space science question, or you just want to reinterpret the plot, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com, and we'll go beyond the horizon for you. Thanks for listening. Steve Nerlick, Cheap Astronomy.